Nickelodeon in management. It was changing and it was getting less fun to me. Like, you know, I had a lot of fun there. I made money. I made friends. Sounds like a fun place to work. It was a really fun time, too, because it was like when Ren and Stimpy was there mm. and when Rugrats was there. We're talking you know, like the 90s. Yeah, it was, it was a very fun time. Yeah. It was pretty much, you know, early to end of the... I think my last day was December 31st of the year 2000, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. It was a transition directly into It was radio. a Sunday. It was. It was. Um, you know, I was at Nickelodeon and I had a dream that I was not able to make happen. And so then I knew I was going to leave after that. And my dream involved making radio and making news. Like I wanted to create a news division for Nickelodeon the way MTV had a news division. And at MTV, you know, you had Rock the Vote and you had the documentary unit and you had MTV News about like pop culture news and all of these things were in a news division. Yeah. Different kinds of true things for and I thought, wow, it would be so great if Nickelodeon had that for kids instead of just one show that would come out when something terrible happened, <laughs> mainly. Sort of like coping with tragedy and explaining Yeah, the and it was a world. wonderful show, but yeah. it really was about, like, it came out on the television when things were terrible, when something bad had happened. And, um, and I thought it would be great to do that. And I, at the time, was listening to tons of radio and loving it. And I thought radio would be really wonderful to kind of try to bring to Nickelodeon. But, you know, kids radio is a no kind of notoriously bad business, because how do you do it? You know, to have just a kids-only radio station has never really worked. Disney's had one for a while, right? Yeah, they did, and they were the only ones. And it, I don't know if it ever really worked. Anyway, all the business development, like, gurus at Nickelodeon were like, no, the business model's bad. It can't happen. But then the internet was invented, and it was like, oh, maybe we could make internet radio. The word podcast wasn't really used then. But we thought we could do that. And so I was trying to, you know, I was advocating for this division, and I asked for, like, a big pile of money to do this thing and to do radio and news and they just said no <laughs> so then i was like oh i guess there's no job for me here was there no interest specifically in bringing news programs i think yeah i think my idea was not interesting to them yeah i think it was not interesting to them or they would have said yes or they would have said yes but smaller they just said no we don't want to do that then they asked me if i wanted a job making promos with like mattel and i was like I think that's maybe not the right job for me. That's the exact opposite direction <laughs> of the one that I want to go in. And it's an interesting lens with which to view the, the news industry. How do you tailor the horrible happenings in the world to, to children? Or to let kids tell you what news is. Mm. Like what's news from a kid's point of view is like what happened today at school? Like, new, you know, like what is news from a child? Yeah. Like those are all the things that we thought would be really fun to explore, but it just never happened. But my boss and I, who were trying to do this, we, um, he's like, well, who would you love to work with more than anybody? Like, who do you want to work with? Mm. And I was like, well, Ira Glass, he should help us create a show for kids, you know? And he's like, okay, let's call him up, you know? And the great thing, like, you know, he took our call and then he was like, yeah, I have no interest in doing that at all. <laughs> like, at all. <laughs> what are the first steps when you leave Nickelodeon and really sort of enter radio in earnest? Well, the first, the very, very first thing I did was not work. I bought um, mm. a, a recorder like that, mm -hmm. but it was on old-timey DAT tape. Mm -hmm. And I bought a mic and I went away. I was um, really tired of the grind, so I was away. I was in Ghana and Burkina Faso for three months. And I kind of went away to and gave myself full permission with this equipment to use it or not use it. Mm. And I... Um, 
you know, talk to a bunch of people and try to professionalize my ability to whip it out and like hold it and get good sound. And I figured if I took this three-month trip and I never took it out, then that would be a sign that like this was not a good job for me. Because, you know, like I was used to like art school where I'd go and I'd buy like those beautiful pastels or watercolors and I'd buy all the beautiful supplies because they were so pretty, but then I wouldn't really Mm. use them. So I I kind of gave myself permission first to try it and not do anything. Mm -hmm. And I found like I loved it. Like I loved having it and approaching strangers and asking them whatever I wanted. Like I really loved it. The first steps are tough, right? I mean, the first time you approach somebody you've never met with a piece of recording equipment. I did not find that hard. No? Yeah, that that I did not find hard. That I didn't actually ever find hard. Um, I really liked it. And so then that said to me, this is a good job for you. Yeah. Like this is like you would be good at this because that just wasn't scary. Was the goal to do anything with the audio? Yeah, I think at the time I thought I'd come back and make some pieces, but I, I never did. Mm. Like I have boxes and boxes of DAT tape in my basement that I haven't listened to. Like I remember this one guy's voice. It was like velvet and I kind of would love to go back and listen to it, but, but I haven't. Is that field recording experience something that you still apply to the current job? I mean, obviously, you know, you're sort of going into studios and recording these things. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's what I like best. Yeah. So one of the things I do, which I think you're alluding to is like, I'm, I'm the host of Love Me, which we, you know, have a, it's a CBC podcast mm-hmm. that I'm uh, a part of. And then the other thing is I make things like I do documentary work. And that's what I like best. I mean, I like to be in the field. That's where I'm best. Still, like I'm a good writer. I'm a pretty good host. I'm a really good interviewer. And um, I'm really good at being with people and getting them to open up, just being with them while things happen. And like, that's the kind of tape I like. Like, I like that. I don't hear it so much on podcasts anymore because it takes a long time to get, I think. In some cases, money to travel well, around. time is and, money, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I think the podcast world has a lot of people doing things with tape syncs or, yeah. you know, by Skype, you know, by phone. Sure. But I just like to be places and experience yeah. things. That's what I like best. It's still what I like best. It can be whatever you want it to be. There's yeah. absolutely no barrier of entry. I mean, I, I've got a slight upgrade with this setup here, yeah. but I mean, you can... You can do Skype. I hear a lot of I heard a lot of people who do professional podcasts kind of yeah. shit on that a little bit, the crummy sounding shows, but I, I think that's kind of the beauty of it. Well, I like that people can do it. Yeah. You don't necessarily want to listen to it. Some I, I might and some I might not. Like I I don't know that they're all listenable mm-hmm. <laughs> for me. Sure. Or what I want, right? Like I don't listen to tons of interview shows. Mm-hmm. But I never have, even when it was just radio. Like, I wasn't necessarily listening to the talk shows. Mm-hmm. Like, I was interested in what Dave Isay was doing or what Joe Richmond was doing or what the Kitchen Sisters were doing, what Ira Glass was doing, because he seemed to be, I feel like at that time it felt like, and maybe it still feels that way, but I think it has different periods. At that time, it felt like Ira and his bunch of friends, you know, and, you know, it was David Rakoff and David Sedaris and Sarah Vowell and Scott Carrier, and they were all of his kind of buddies. Again, when he sort of first decided in earnest to, yeah, to, yeah, get, into, to get into to, radio, into the radio world. I started over at the bottom. Did you find, though, that there was a place for what you were looking to do? No, I learned that that I had some naive fantasies yeah. that the kinds of things that I really loved were funded. 
It took me a long time to realize like, oh, those things I really love. No one gives you money to do that. (laughs) What kind of model were you looking at? Well, I mean, I was just thinking about the stories I liked. Mm. And at the time, I thought, you know, when I, I did listen to This American Life, and it was a huge motivator. And I loved the Kitchen Sisters. And I loved it was then sound portraits. It was Dave Isay's stuff was so beautiful and immersive. If you ever listen to the Sunshine Hotel or, you know, I mean, it's beautiful documentaries. And because I heard them on the radio, I thought like, oh, you could get a job and learn how to do this. And it would not be that hard. Like I could do what I did when I was, you know, younger. I could Mm. be an intern and you know, fetch coffee and start at the bottom and people would see me and think I'm charming and want to help me. So that idea of starting from the bottom was still a romantic notion in spite of having... Yeah, I did. I was a creative director and I started over as an intern. It was a foolish idea. But you... I really did that. You were excited about the opportunity to do that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I just wanted to learn... I knew I didn't know how to do it. Like, I didn't know how to do it. You didn't have any practical skills that translated? Um, The kind of stuff... We were making – I don't think so. I mean I think people could make the argument, but I think it would be <laughs> bogus. I don't think it does actually. And I just wanted to learn from people. And somehow I really naively thought if I just started over at the bottom, people would meet me and want to help me and they would teach me. I mean I, I appreciate <laughs> that rosy view of the world. I mean I've been in publishing for a long time and I've had a few instances where you know, I've, I've been laid off. It's just kind of – comes with working in publishing. And the idea of starting over anywhere is terrifying to me. Yeah, well, it was – was it terrifying? I mean, I'm sure it was. I mean, because how (laughs) could it not be? But I had like a cushion – you know? I appreciate that you remember the good parts. I'm, I'm uh, like I had a complete opposite personality type. Oh no, there were a lot of bad parts, and I can, I mean, I can gripe with the best mm. of them. But um, like I really wanted to do it. Like I remember, you know, I mean, at the time I was kind of grumbling around the office, and you know, I had a picture of Reptar, the dinosaur from Rugrats, tearing I'm the Viacom, work. tearing the Viacom building apart, was like hanging up on my wall. So when someone came into my little office, they would see me wishing destruction upon the company. You know, I mean, I I was done, I think. Yeah, passive-aggressive in your interior decorating? No, maybe just aggressive-aggressive. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I remember I asked some people, because there was churn at MTV Networks, and there was a culture, not unlike what is happening now everywhere, mm-hmm. too, but culture of permalancers, a culture of second-class citizens. They're the staff people and, the, you know, the people who just never get benefits and are there and there and there. And I was lucky. I was a staff person. But but that you could see that and you could see, you know, every, I don't know, two years there'd be like major layoffs and then they'd want you to grow your business by 20% like as they, you have to lay off a ton of people. You know, like that was always happening. And I think at some point, I know at some point, I asked people who were more senior than than I was – At what level in the organization do you think, like, you can be a nice person? And then at what level do you just kind of have to be an asshole to be successful? Like, like, where's the cutoff? Like, at what point does asshole become part of your job description? At what point is is being a monster a a net positive to your career Yeah, like, is it a vice president? Is it a senior vice president? Like, at what point do you kind of have to be a dick to do well? Was that your way of sort of assessing where the um, exit point was for you? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I asked people that. I mean, and people did try to answer it for me. I mean, usually they said, "Hmm, 
senior vice president, senior, giving me a little cushion. But the writing was on the wall. Like I wasn't believing in it. I wasn't happy. So I was all too thrilled to be able to start over. And I wanted to do it. Like I had fantasies of stories I could do. I um, listened to the radio and things like I talked about. And I would think about people I could interview and things I could do. And, like, that never happened. Like, I never worked at Nickelodeon and dreamt up, oh, here's this TV show I could make. Like, this is exactly how this show would work. Or this is – like, I didn't dream up things like that exactly. And so the radio, it just seemed like, oh, I heard them. And then I had ideas about what I could do. And it seemed like, oh, I should see if I could do that. Like, it seemed like a very direct inspiration Mm. model. This is based on – Listening to the radio. Yeah. Actually listening to the radio. Sort of the assumption, though, (laughs) being an outsider, that the process of actually manifesting or creating a product is a little more direct in radio versus television. Yeah. It seemed like a lot less nonsense. I didn't have to, you know, worry about a DP and get a guy to light it and deal with a big crew and actors. Like, I didn't have to do any of that. Fewer chefs. Yeah. I could just kind of do it. If you knew what you were doing, which I didn't, but I wanted to learn how to do it. How wrong were you? I think you can. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that's really wonderful about about it is that you can. I think, you know, like everything, there's a downside and that's, oh, you have to do everything. (laughs) And I think that's less now that, um, you know, podcasting is happening, is that people are more willing to realize like, oh, yeah, like there's a reporter and a producer and a sound designer and an engineer and like people are willing to think like oh yeah there you don't have to do it all you know you can have a role on a project and not do it all radio always though sort of felt a little more finite when it comes to those creative slots and that you know you know we're talking like one NPR station in most cities. That's that's only so many opportunities to actually get on. Yeah, no, and in New York there was only one yeah. station. What was that process like to actually? Well, I did there three internships, mm-hmm. three internships, and I thought surely someone will want to hire and, and, me. And how old were you at this point? Old, fully grown. <laughs> too, too old to be interned. <laughs> fully grown, yeah. fully grown. But I think I was agreeable. I tried to learn and do things. Um, one was with Studio 360 mm-hmm. and one was with Radio Rookies and then one was with On the Media. You know, I think especially in light of the internet and everything that's come after that the rest of my media career is going to be basically jumping from one lily pad to the next. I mean, nothing, mm. nothing feels particularly secure to me now even working at you know or especially working under the umbrella of a large corporation yeah that sounds right but but if you you can always make a podcast right you can't you always do it i'm losing money on this particular one yeah well you know all the best stuff you lose money on sure so we're talking about you know (laughs) surviving in new york city and trying to you know yeah no i know i'm joking but like you know like i come from this idea where like i want to spend hours and hours in the field like i think i probably lose money on every project to be honest are you happy with yeah i am because i like I feel like now I have a nice balance. I have and work, you know, with Love Me. And then I get to do my projects where I spend too much time following people around until they get sick of me. And then I spend tons of time where they're like, when's that thing going to come out? I, I, You follow me around for months. Mm-hmm. Like, when's that going to come out? I'm like, oh, I'm working on it, working on it. You know, so like, uh, in general, I feel good about that. Like, I don't know what else I would do. Like, I can't say like I'm... I don't know. Maybe I would do a job somewhere. I mean, you're technically doing a job in that you're, 
you're working for yeah money but, yeah i know no, it's, i don't feel like i have a yeah, job yeah. really still you still enjoy it that much it feels like it's my life i mean there's hard yeah. parts of it i'm like it's not all you know roses and sunshine i don't feel like i have a job like i don't walk into this every day we're in an, an office building we're in an listener. office building in a conference room yeah with big screens and marketing about the company behind us i don't have that kind of a thing and i don't think i'm suited to that mm. i don't think i maybe ever was where i grew out of it or i don't know i don't know i'm not dying to get back into that i'm dying to kind of figure out how to make my my making more sustainable sure who doesn't but but now we can this is hard for me to explain to people the the office setup there were periods in my life where i was forced to freelance yeah i miss the consistency of it yeah you know being able to to leave my apartment and go somewhere and, and do yeah, my work. That's nice. I left today in the middle of the day. It was so liberating. I left my house. Is that an unusual <laughs> occurrence? Sometimes for you? I don't leave. Sometimes my husband comes home and I haven't left the house yet. Yeah. And that's not right. You need to leave. That's one of the primary downsides of being a, a freelancer, really being in any sort of creative field. You don't have the same constraints, but it, it's kind of impossible to shut it off. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you always feel like you should be working. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All the time. Yeah. What does a day look like for you? I don't set an alarm, which is nice. That's nice. When when does the, the body naturally wake up? The body up? is about 7.38. Okay. So you're, not, it's not, you're uh, not sleeping till noon. I'm not sleeping till noon. But, you know, I will maybe lay around for an hour and like listen to a podcast, like listen to the daily or sure. throw on the radio. It's kind of homework. Conscious research, well, right? I always, I'm an avid listener. Sure. Um, no, I'm not saying that for the, you know. No, no, I mean, negative, it's but... an, it's a nice time to listen. So I'll often do that, and then I'll get upstairs, and I, I always have coffee in the refrigerator that I make the night before. So then I'll go up, and there's already a cup with milk in it and then coffee, and I just pull it out and drink it, and then I sit at my desk and start. I mean, like pretty much. Divorce from the nine to five or going to the office. You do feel it necessary to have some sort of routine. I like to be at the desk right away. You have to sort of set aside a part of the home to be. An yeah, office yeah, space. yeah. No, I have a, I have a cave. I have a yeah. cave. Yeah, yeah. I, I do have a cave where I can be. How much has podcasting and the internet freed up your ability to be purely creative? So I have several friends who are filmmakers, and back when I was first trying to get in to radio and as you mentioned it's like wow there would be one game in town yeah. you know so if, if you don't get a job at the local station or you know whatever if it just doesn't work out for you for whatever reason you know making money selling piece by piece by piece is not and has never been sustainable they just don't none of the rates for contributors are good enough they're just not and still probably aren't my filmmaking friends would say, like, I just don't understand because they had all these dream pet projects, these documentaries that they would be working on and shooting forever and then cut together. And they would say, I just don't understand. Like, why can't you just do what we do, which is like pull an Errol Morris? Like, sure. I'm going to do commercials for like GE and then use that sweet corporate money to do whatever the hell I want. The, the John Cassavetes model. You know, is yeah. that who Sell it is? I, know, I always and... think of it as like Errol Morris. Yeah. It's like no one thinks about Errol Morris's commercials. Sell out during the man during the day and then after hours. Or that there's uh, – or not during the day, but maybe you do a project and then you go dark and then you do a project. Ten years ago, this just wasn't an option. 
Hmm. Like no one was saying like, oh, yes, I really want an audio producer to come and I'm going to give them real money to build something, you know, sure. to make something. There weren't outlets in the same way there are now. Right. There was no way to – in my filmmaking friends could not understand that. I was like, yeah, I don't have that. Like we don't have – I don't – there isn't that gig that you can get. Like you can make this little short film for GE and make a pile of money that can fund your film. Like there is no radio equivalent. But now with podcasting, there kind of is. That's not really the model that you're doing right now. You are doing projects for companies, but you're not doing a spot for GE or Exxon. No, but um, like I'm working on – I have two corporate clients that have in-house mm. podcasts. Okay. Wow, those pay really well and they allow me to then do my thing. What's that process like? How is that different working with a, a client? Well, it's – your job is to make the client happy and try to understand what they want and give it to them. It's like really trying to understand what, what they want to get out of it and and getting them there. Um, like I don't work through agencies. Like I have been lucky enough to pick up projects that are direct you know, with a client. So there's not like layers of approvals and egos in between. It's like literally like, oh, you corporate person want a podcast. You tell me what you want and I'm going to help you do it. Do you find that they understand what they want, that they have some idea? Um, I think one person I'm working with really does. She she has a very clear idea. Mm -hmm. One person doesn't. But then with both of them, you're just trying to help guide them to something that you think will be interesting because like I've worked in a corporate situation and like, you know, if something feels BSE, you know, you're just not going to just because your company's giving it to you, you're not going to really, you know, you're still a human being who can smell BS. So you kind of want to get around that. Do you find it's harder to invest yourself in those things creatively when it's somebody else's project than it is a, a for-profit project? I think it's not about investing yourself creatively. I, I think what you're trying to do is is understand what they want and, and give it to them. You still want to put the best possible product in the world. Yeah, you want them to the sound great and you want them to get what they want out of it. But but it's, I don't feel like it's my creative energy. It feels like a very different part. At what point was it clear that podcasting was a good creative avenue for what you wanted to do? Well, as soon as it came out, it seemed like – because I've always liked to do these things where I gather a lot of tape and I go deep on something. And so it always seemed like, oh, they could be anything. So like it didn't have to be necessarily an interview show or a show with like one piece. Like I think you could go deep on something. So at some point, you know, I was working with KCRW and they asked me if I would want to make something like a documentary mm -hmm. something. And I was like, yeah, I want to do stuff about the port, you know, the port of L.A. And I spent probably six months on the ground trying to find stories about the port of LA. And then I put together a podcast and you could do that because you have more time and you're not the tricky thing about the radio is it used to be you'd spend all this time in the field reporting and then a news news organization um, or a show would say, okay, you've got seven minutes. And that was a lot if you could have a seven minute piece, but more likely like they might say, we just want four or can you give us two and a half? And you're like, wow, I just spent 30 hours in the field and you want two and a half minutes like that kind of like doesn't make any sense. And it used to be in radio that then you no one else would want it because they're like, oh, well, it aired on NPR. Mm. And it's like, yeah, but it was only a two minute piece or a five minute piece or whatever. It would be so small, but then no one else would want it. Because everyone was so territorial. It was so strange. So with podcasting, it was like, oh, you could really do deep. But like there was a place for it. 
which is great. I mean, if you look at, you know, those are, I think, some of the more exciting podcasts are the mini series. Like, I think it's great. I'm glad as, as somebody who does the vast majority of his writing online that I did start out in magazines, that I did yeah. start at a place where Calm Space was at a premium. I, I certainly learned to be a better editor and a more efficient writer. Yeah. Having gathered those stories for all the pain of having to chop something down into 30 seconds, it's probably made you better at your job. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> no. Maybe. I mean, this is the... That's, Could be. I don't know. I don't know. The, the impulse is that we've got this, you know, this this fire hose of content. Let's just throw everything at, at people at once. Yeah, but, and there's definitely stuff, I mean, I hear that just seemed like too long. It's yeah. like, oh, that was 10 parts. That could have been five parts or what, you know, but I think it's all pretty new and people are exploring what things could be and things were so short for so long mm. that I think now people are, you know, they're testing out a new space and sometimes it's great and sometimes it goes on too long. Like there's podcasts I think go on too long or it's like, oh my God, how do you do a like a multi-part series and not have a solid ending? Like that's worrisome. Like I'm working on a project now. Like I have held it because like I didn't have an ending. That actually happened in reality. <laughs> you know, like I'm just waiting for reality to happen yeah. so I can. You're waiting for the story to catch up with the. So I have a good ending, yeah. like not a bad ending. Like I wanted a good ending, so I had to wait for it and do something else for a little while. Do you think there's a sweet spot in terms of length? Uh, I I'm finding it's like both ends of the spectrum, really. It depends on how people are listening to it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I like I like those little mini series a lot mm. like i just like them um i like when they leave you wanting more you know like that makes me a little bit sad when someone makes a nice series and they're like wow we could get some ad dollars and they just keep churning them out and it's like oh they don't really hold together as a series anymore and but you know people can make money and i i totally respect the need to make money <laughs> but it's less fun as a listener like i like when they're nice documentaries i guess i just mean in terms of yeah. what people's attention spans are when it comes to sitting down and listening well, to people people's attention spans have really changed like when i started i mean i sound like i'm like 100 years old but people said like you can never do a story with one voice that's longer than five minutes because mm. the listener will get bored like you you just can't have like a non-narrated piece with like one voice that was longer than three to five minutes. It was like considered like mm -hmm. insanity. <laughs> it's just like, oh yeah, like there's so many stories like that now that, and listeners listen and they enjoy them and they are learning to listen. Like we weren't really giving them enough credit, I think. It has been interesting to watch, you know, outlets like NPR evolve in the podcast space. You know, there's always this tendency when a new medium comes around to just basically recreate the old one yeah. i mean their their shows pri shows were all basically reheats. the radio shows i think for a long time i mean it it's the, i i've never worked at npr so mm. i i can't speak with any um insider knowledge mm -hmm. you know i i speak as a listener but i think for a long time my observation would be like as podcast was growing i think it took npr a long time to yeah. find its way in the space because they weren't really making shows you know they had put all their eggs in the we're a news organization basket and they were really good at delivering the morning and the afternoon news but they really weren't developing shows so then it took them a while to figure out like well how do you make a show <laughs> you know like wnyc or wbez like various stations mm -hmm. were making shows but npr really wasn't making that many shows 
And so then they learned, and now they're making great shows. But they weren't the first ones on the podcast scene by any stretch. Aside from length, what are the, the primary differences, you think, between producing for radio versus producing for a podcast? I don't know that there should be or really is any. I think... Um, I mean, obviously, there are the, the constraints of the radio format from the standpoint of sponsorships and certain, you know, the news breaking and things like that. There's the yeah. constraints of the format. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, the clock, you know, that was, it was the the clock was a big thing in radio, which is why you had those two minute and, or two and a half and four minute pieces that was to fit into a clock. In the early days of podcasting, I would listen to a show that would actually back announce mm -hmm. or, you know, do the, if you're just tuning in yeah, for an hour long on demand podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just like people didn't take the time to do it. And maybe now they do. Like, I remember early on, like, the the music that they would put in, like, the, the music beds they yeah. would give to stations were still plunked in, mm -hmm. you know, in the early days. I think one thing that differentiates podcasts now from just radio is this idea of the host and the personality and and that people decided or think that podcasts are so much more intimate or it's about the host or that um and i think to some degree sure yeah uh, i mean sure um i think that always existed in radio but i think podcasts definitely made people into personalities i think even more and people had even more of a desire to like connect uh, with their listeners because they were going to beg them for money later you know <laughs> really and i guess as someone who really likes the documentary stuff like i'd love a podcast that really just didn't have a host at all <laughs> like i think that would be fine <laughs> what drew you to the current project they approached me and and they asked me if i would want to join them um and i said yes i mean i think for me what i love about love me is um a, they're they're like stunning producers. Like there are a lot of podcasts now about relationships and love, and I I don't think there's anyone who does it better than these guys. I really don't, and I know I'm biased, but they're great. And they wanted a host who was going to be kind of not hosty, who wasn't going to be doing a lot of like labor. What, what does that mean, labor? Well, I mean, a lot of hosts are kind of going to tell you what you're going to hear. Like I never. We don't do that. You want to let the pieces do the heavy lifting. Yeah. Um, and so it's more like me coming in to kind of set a mood, you know, and really um, share my own experiences and my own kind of uncomfortable thoughts and interactions with the people in my life because that's what our show is about. And so then I talk about those things and it kind of then puts someone in a zone, but I never say, and coming up um, is, you know, producer Brian, you know, and he has this piece about this, which I've spent a lot of time writing mm -hmm. host intros, you know, whenever you uh, in radio and, and we just don't do that. I mean, it's, it's very elegant and, um, and the intros that I do on the show always come at it come from a sideways point of view it's never uh, uh dead on and that's nice your primary job is as host i'm the host yeah are you involved at all with the production of the they produce they make it beautiful is that a good experience i mean obviously it's like... wonderful i mean they're so good i mean they're yeah. wonderful i'm so glad to help them in whatever way i can but like they're making beautiful things i mean you got into the business to 
be a storyteller, to be on the, the other side, right? To do that, that research. To make the stories. Yeah. yeah, but I'm still making stories. Like I'm working on something now and we thought we might all do it together. Mm. I have a long thing that'll be a multi-part series. And maybe we still will. It's something I think the CBC didn't want because it's not about Canadians. So that is a deal breaker. What's your relationship to the, the pre-produced pieces? I mean, how do you sit with a piece and internalize it part of your role as producer is is being a listener yeah. i mean it, yeah. it seems like you're almost kind of engaging it with the, the stories in the same way you would a podcast except you're trying to figure out how to script yourself around it yeah i think you know we try to do is think about some of the big ideas or feelings that we're mm -hmm. kind of going for so you're you're involved with the to some degree the creation from the ground up or they just deliver these stories to you uh, neither. It's it's kind of, uh, some of them I know a fair amount as they're happening and others I won't maybe know anything about. It, it just kind of depends. But what we're always doing is, um, talking about the ideas of the pieces and then like what we want to, how we want to set them up. And sometimes I don't want to know too much about something because... You know, when you're trying to figure out, like, well, what stories could you tell and someone tells you something, it's very easy for you to say, like, oh, yeah, I have a story like that. And then it's just too on the nose. So sometimes we hold back and I generate, like, a ton of ideas for stories that I, I give to them. And then we try to match them up. You're talking, it, it sounds like in most of these cases, about delving into some very personal stories. Yeah, on Love Me, the stories are very personal. I mean, like, that's the whole crux of it is that, like, you know, being a human being and rubbing up against each other doesn't always work out. Did you anticipate, though, revealing that much of yourself? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because they, we, we met and they asked me to write up some stuff for them, and I did. And, and then we spoke about it. Um, and all the stuff I wrote about is not really what I spoke to them about when we, you know, kind of got serious on the phone. I just jumped into something that I had been thinking about that day, to be honest. And, and that turned into like the little piece that opens the first episode of the first season. Do you find that you have to be removed? Like there, that there, you know, perhaps a certain amount of time needs to pass before you really feel comfortable releasing that information uh sometimes like there's some things that feel too fresh and i'm yeah. like oh do i want to talk about that yeah there's definitely things that i have said like i am sharing this with you but i don't think it's for this season mm -hmm. you know like i just want to sit with it a little bit yeah and then some things i'm still not sure like we spoke about this you know i have a very good friend who's 91 years old and is nearing the end of life yeah you know, it's very hard to watch. And I just don't, I don't know if I it's not, should be talking about it. It's, it's, it's very sad. And there is a thought, you know, like, oh, should I, should I be a little bit? Yeah. I mean, obviously. Obviously I did. And, so. And but obviously <laughs> you'll be processing it for a, well, as long as she's around and then some. Yeah. I'll be processing it probably forever. Yeah. And. And I think she will be around for a while. It's it's kind of a topsy-turvy, you know. I think a year ago we thought she wouldn't live much longer at all. And 
now here she is like still hanging in there, you know? I mean, she, she's an older person, I mean, 91 and she has like three diseases that make her brain not working very well. So she has like, uh, Alzheimer's, which, you know, obviously mm. makes your memory shit. Um, she's got Parkinson's, which makes it very difficult to like physically move. And then she has something called Lewy body syndrome, which makes you, um, have hallucinations yeah. and see things. She's got all the big ones. So yeah, she has all these things. Yeah. And so she's bedridden and she spends a lot of time in her head, you know, I mean, she spends a lot of time in this kind of twilight sleep where you cannot be sure if she's awake or sleeping or what's happening um in her mind and sometimes she's seeing things and seeing things that are very scary you know because she's physically seeing someone in the room that's not there and sometimes she's seeing things and is kind of chatting and you think oh she's having like a great time in there i don't know who she's talking to i don't know what's going on but like you know you think like, oh it's okay but i think two years ago um her family and her husband i i think i don't know if any of us thought she would still be here and she is, and she's really strong. So, like, I feel bad about that piece because in the piece, I'm like really sad. I'm like, I don't know if she's going to be here much longer, but she's so strong. Like, she's just so, um, yeah, she's not going anywhere. Even if she can't get out of bed and she can't really speak to you, she is dreaming some stuff in that mind and she's not going anywhere. Like, I, I don't know why. <laughs> you know, she just keeps going. This is. Uh in effect a way of processing some of this i mean you're it is you're it's always it surprising for me that people hear them like that's the thing like because I, I as i said i haven't done things about me at all you mean surprising that after you put it out in the world that yeah that people actually and, hear it they're like oh that yeah. thing about your friend i'm yeah. like oh which friend is that like how do you know about my friend <laughs> how do you know about that person yeah and i'm not really good at like telling anybody like i have a friend doug and he was like oh i heard myself on the show i heard you put me in the show i was like oh yeah you I don't warn people yeah, I forget sometimes. So, so I didn't tell Doug and I was like, Oh yeah, sorry. And I'm like, well, I hope that was okay. And he's like, Yeah, it was great. I loved it. No one's been annoyed yet. Yeah. So has, has it been useful or even sort of uh, cathartic? You know what it is? It's wild because I don't know cathartic. It, it is helpful. Like I feel like I wish I did it a long time ago mm. because like when I started, even before I made radio, you know, and I was working in TV, I always had this idea. I don't know if you remember Spalding Gray. Do you mm. remember Spalding mm -hmm. Gray? He was like all the rage yeah. was doing these monologues. monologues that were just, you know, be like two hour shows. And I somehow always thought like, oh, I'm going to be doing that. Mm. Like that's what I'm going to, I shouldn't really be at Nickelodeon or wherever I am. Like that is my future. And then it, it didn't. And I think I, I might've been funnier than, than I am now. <laughs> Cause like when you're younger, you're, you are, you are less um, careful. I think I would have been funnier and much more biting about my family and I used to tell stories about my family just and people would really laugh and it would just be very funny. I talk about myself less a lot now as a grown up. You know, you just kind of don't. Um, yeah. So it's kind of fun to do it. But like I definitely don't have or don't sound like what I would have sounded like at 25 or 30 now. I'm, I'm, I'm not as funny, I think, for sure. I know I'm not as funny. Has it opened you up to having these conversations? You know, now that you're, you're I think sort of I was always kind of having them, like because yeah. I was always just such a big fan of therapy. I mean, I'm such a big 
fan of it. Does this feel like therapy into a microphone? No, I don't think any making really feels like therapy. Mm. It's always tricky. Uh, Like when I'm interviewing people, I never want someone to use it that way because like I'm not really qualified, you know, like I'm just like, okay, I have a microphone and I'm asking you a lot of very personal things. But like I, you know, you can sense sometimes that people are like, oh, I can't tell anyone and I'm telling you this. And that's a very big responsibility. And you are always or I am always like, you should probably talk to someone else about this. You ever get those emails the next day from PR people telling you that they maybe revealed a little too much? That I did? No, that the interviewee. No. (laughs) I've gotten a few of those. No, I I haven't. Um, mainly because the people I interview no don't have PR people. You know, they're people. You know, without you know, it's not like organized. It's like me meeting someone and saying like, "You are interesting, and I want to follow you around for a month." And they're like, "Yeah, okay." You know, have you had that red flag? Go up with your own stories afterwards that maybe you revealed more than you should have? No, because I mean, mine are such small snippets and it's all true. Just because it's true doesn't mean you want it out in the world. I don't think I've said anything I regret. I don't think so. Like with Sally, though, like I haven't, like someone emailed me just as we were walking in and um, sent a note. And anyway, just sent a note to me and then copied Sally's husband. It was like, I just heard the story about Sally. And I was like, I haven't told Aaron yet. Like, I was like, oh, shit, I should really tell Aaron because yeah. he doesn't know I'm talking about his wife. I haven't told him. Like, I should probably tell him. So I have to, like, go home and tell him. Like, oops. I mean, I, I think we love each other. It'll be fine. But it's like, like, I, I have to be better at that than I have been. But I like a little bit, like, it feels like my diary. Like, I like just doing it. And not talking about it to with my friends, like I like that. There, it, it is satisfying that it feels secret. You know, I mean, it's so not secret, but it feels secret to me. And I think that's why they work is because they feel secret a little bit. So I don't know what to do. I guess I should just be better about telling people about it right before it airs, right? I mean, I just have been very lazy about that. There you go. That was Will Kalski. She is the host of the CBC podcast. Love me. Thanks to her. Enjoy that conversation. Radio and podcasting are two things that I care about very much. Thanks to her. Thanks to Meryl Cooper for helping set up that conversation. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. Please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Like us on Facebook. We have a YouTube page you can subscribe to as well. If you have any feedback, it's RLCast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rylcast.tumblr.com. And that's about it for now. We are going to be back in a few days with another episode of RIYL. Bye.